Good evening and welcome to the 2020 C. Henry Smith Peace Oratorical Contest. My name is Dwayne Stolzfus and I'm a professor of communication here at Goshen College. Care for veterans, deportations, gender violence, inner peace, a murder in the Congo, the call to ministry, images in advertising. These are just some of the topics that Goshen College students have addressed in this contest in recent years. And tonight, we continue that tradition of speech making that has such a rich history here at Goshen College. An intercollegiate peace association contest was first held here back in May of 1907, more than a century ago. And Goshen College students have been speaking their minds on peace and justice issues ever since. We're especially grateful that two former contestants in this contest, Hans and Bonnie Hillebrand, about a decade ago made a, a generous contribution to, to the contest, which permitted us to begin awarding more generous prizes to our top finalists. I would say, as I like to say every year, that from conversations with our finalists, it's, it's clear that what matters to them is not the financial gift they'll receive at the end, but the opportunity to speak about something that's really dear to their hearts and to speak um, in, in a platform uh, for an audience like this that is uh, appreciative of their efforts. Tonight, the event is being live streamed, and so the audience is even larger than the 300 or so people who are gathered here in the Humble Center. Our five finalists tonight have already passed through a preliminary round of competition that was held in January. They've worked hard shaping, polishing their speeches, and their names and those speech titles you'll see in your programs. They appear in the program in the order in which they're going to, to speak this evening. And I should say that the, the order of speakers was determined by a random drawing. And now, let's meet the finalists. And I would say, please wait for all of the speakers to be introduced, and then we'll have uh, applause for all five at once. And I'd invite each of the speakers to stand as, as I introduce you. Our first speaker this evening is Jasmine Macias, a junior biology major from West Covina, California. Our next speaker is Jay Slongnecker, a senior history major from South Bend, Indiana. Our third speaker, Ranit Goswami, is a sophomore exercise science major from Goshen. Mandira Panta is our fourth speaker, a senior sustainability studies major from Bhaktapur, Nepal. And our final speaker this evening is Nassim Rasolipur, a senior interdisciplinary ma studies major from Tehran, Iran. Please join me in. We're also pleased to have three distinguished judges with us for this evening's contest. And I would ask each judge to stand as I introduce you. And once again, ask to save the applause until all three have been introduced. Uh, Alan Kaufman. Alan is born in Goshen, and he made a point of noting that he never left town for longer than a 14-week study service term. He's a Goshen College graduate, class of 1971, with a degree in natural science. He and his wife, Carol Miller, have two sons, Nick and Lucas. They attend the Goshen City Church of the Brethren. He worked uh, for 25 years in the office products industry, and during that time, he also 
served uh, 16 years on the Goshen City Council, becoming mayor then in 1997. He was elected to four more terms, retiring in 2015 after nearly 19 years in that office. He worked for a year following in the, for the Indiana Association of Cities and Towns. Um, he was awarded a Sagamore of the Wabash by Indiana Governor Joe Kernan and a key to the city of Goshen, um, uh, as well as the first Good of Goshen Award, um, a recognition uh, offered to him by Mayor Jeremy Stutzman. Our next judge, Adrian Nesbitt, is a Goshen native. Adrian graduated from Goshen College in 2008 with degrees in music and in theater. Since then, she's continued acting and directing and producing live productions regionally. In her role as director of events at iDART Creative Studios, she coordinates and oversees Goshen's monthly First Fridays festivals. She's the board president at Goshen Art House facilitating local theater and music performances, as well as independent film. She founded Goshen's annual Fine Arts Festival, the Arts on the Mill Race, and is the festival director for the Riverbend Film Fest, which was just moved from spring to the fall, October, right? In downtown Goshen. She enjoys living in downtown Goshen with her partner and their dog, Lizzie. Regina Shan Stoltzfus is chair of the Bible, Religion, and Peace, Justice, Conflict Studies Department at Goshen College. She's co-founder of the Roots of Justice Anti-Oppression Program, formerly known as Damascus Road, and she continues as a core trainer with Roots of Justice. She's worked in peace education with the Ohio Conference of the Mennonite Church, with Mennonite Central Committee, and with Mennonite Mission Network. She holds a, a Master of Arts degree in Biblical Studies from Ashland Theological Seminary and has a PhD in Theology and Ethics from the Chicago Theological Seminary. She's the recipient of the state's first Indiana Spirit of Justice Award. She received that in 2016. It's the highest award conferred by Indiana's Civil Rights Commission. When time allows, Regina loves being involved in community theater. She's appeared in several plays at Goshen's Art House and is currently in the cast of the 2020 production of Michiana Monologues. Thank you to our judges. And now we turn to the heart of our program this evening Five speeches, five positions taken on issues of peace and justice. I invite you to listen closely, keep electronic devices out of sight and out of mind as our speakers share with us, beginning with Jasmine and then following in the order listed in the program. What's it like to have a normal family? Where you come home from school after having such a great day, getting to class on time, acing a quiz, your crush sliding you a note in class, asking if you like him, so you grab that paper, you circle yes, then he's stuck with you forever. Then later, your friends ask to come over. So you bring them to your house, your family greets you guys, you watch movies, you eat together, and then you finish the rest of the week, the rest of the week great. What is that like? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. For me, it was going to school, having all that good happen, and then the thought of coming home and not knowing what kind of day it would be for me. It's not necessarily my family that shapes my day at home. It's one person. One person who can change my day from bright to dark, who could turn a home, a place that's supposed to be your peace, your sanctuary, where you can retreat and recharge, into a place of disappointment, pain, and sadness. 
What's it like to come home and see empty beer bottles or cans across the kitchen countertop? What's it like to live with an alcoholic? You see, it's the feeling where you enter a safe space and you feel the air tighten, the tension, your heart beats faster and you slowly hold your breath. Where you know one word, one action, or anything can set him off. So when it comes to inviting friends over, I hesitate. I warn them about my stepdad and how he can be when he's drunk. And thankfully, I've been around friends who know what kind of home that is for me. They care for my well-being. They make sure that I'm good and that I'm happy. Now, to give you an understanding of how he drinks, he'll go to a liquor store every single day, buy a two or four pack of 24-ounce Bud Light beers, drink them all, and start again the next day. Just to remind you, our fridge is not empty. He has cans in there, several cans, yet goes out of his way every day after work and buys more for the road. We even have designated trash cans and trash bins on the side of his house just for his bottles and beers alone. I mean, it's a good thing he recycles everything himself and gets money out of it. But where does that money go to? To more beer. And more beer leads to more drinking, which brings out a side you would have never seen coming. Now, do you know what it feels like to be dehumanized? To feel less than you already are and yet still be demanded respect from an alcoholic? Have you seen the way they get when they're angry? When their appearance turns dark and menacing, how their jaw clenches, eyebrows drop, the eye contact that feels like it's piercing through your soul? The complete physiological changes of the entire body. I, myself, found that the most absolute, scariest, and most powerful way to make someone feel so small and inconsequential is through yelling. Now, with that, let's add some intensity. Throwing objects, banging on furniture, slamming doors, all the works. Now, this one time, everyone, my siblings and I were all hungry. Just to give you perspective, I'm one of seven siblings, the third oldest in general, but the oldest in the house. So we were trying to decide what to eat. So my stepdad suggests a burger joint. It's called Star Burger. Now, for him, he's the type that he doesn't care if you're picky. You're going to get what you get, and you're going to like it. Now, my youngest brother, Jay, at the time, he was about seven years old. He, on the other hand, is the complete opposite. He's always specific on what he wants, or else he won't even eat it or touch it. So to his request, he wanted a burger with no tomato. So that was that. When our stepdad went to go get the food, he ordered a burger with everything on it without taking my brother's request into consideration. When he got home, he handed the desired burgers to everybody, and my brother got his, saw the tomato, and didn't even touch it. He complained about how he didn't want it and how he specifically asked for a burger with no tomato. Now, yes, he could have easily just took out the tomato, but to him, it was already tainted. So what was the point of even doing it? So he just sat there, upset, not throwing a fit, just kind of sad and out of it. At this point, my stepdad started getting angry. He started yelling with rage, telling my little brother to eat it, starve, or be grounded. How he doesn't care whether there's tomato on the burger, that it's healthy and to stop being a little baby. Now, I know that sounds like a medium dispute, but throw in some tension, some profanity, and you get a whole different experience. So he comes over, grabs the burger, some other food off the table, and throws it. There's a box of napkins and basically fries in there, and he throws that across the kitchen floor. So to put in perspective, he walked out of that kitchen with rage. He got his food, threw it on the table, walked back to his room, slammed the door, and we all just sat there in silence. What were we to do? I look at my little brother and he's crying. I know that scared him. The way my stepdad presented himself, released his emotions with pure anger in a way he couldn't even control himself. I was at a loss for words. My family and I see both sides of him. We know how he is, how he gets. We know what it's like. For 11 years now, I've always stood by my mom and comforted her and my siblings because they're younger than me. 
And to experience that kind of verbal and emotional abuse at a young age, 7, 8, 11, 12, 16 years old. The process of beating a person down and making them feel bad about themselves is just one of the worst feelings in the world. We walk around wounded, living our lives confused and always feeling bad about ourselves on a regular basis. It's the emotional pain of a physical attack, but just without the bruise. That's what it's like. You see, I question myself and my situation a lot. I view all aspects possible, weighing the pros and cons of living with an alcoholic and how that gave me a sense of understanding for the world and for others. Living in this experience not only sheds light on how interactions change when under the influence, but it shows how one can live through it and how we can overcome it or find some peace with it. But in this sense, my home, what exactly am I to do when someone is repeatedly destroying my sense of peace? I found a quote in an article from John Denver. I believe that we are here for each other, not against each other. Everything comes from an understanding that you are a gift in my life, whoever you are, whatever our differences. Now, I struggle even saying this story because I realize I casted my stepfather in a bad light. My stepdad is one person I can be there for. I am not against him. I do not hate him. He's still an important person in my life. His alcoholism isn't all of who he is. He's a great man when he's sober, but when he's drunk, it's different. He wakes up at four in the morning, goes to work the whole day, sometimes does 24-hour shifts. He's a power lineman, so he works on electrical poles, so that's his job. His focus is work, family, and money. Not in that specific order, but generally those ideas. So on those days when he's home and he's sober, he's always wrestling and farting on the boys, always cracking jokes with the girls, and tries his best to go out of his way and do everything he can for his family. See, it's hard. You get one kind of person one day and another the next. It's difficult to feel powerless in these kinds of situations because I can't just tell him to stop. I can't do much in this scenario, but I know for a fact it taught me more than I know. Everything comes from an understanding. His situation came from something, and I'm not here to uncover it. I'm not here to figure out what it is. I understand that I live with someone who changes and challenges my view on the world. Someone who taught me that viewing life as it is is a gift. My family, my home, my alcoholic stepfather are all a gift. A kind of gift that made me question the idea of peace and what it means for me and my family. There has never been a day that I sought out someone worse than him. I know that specifically for me, peace isn't just a calm, serene, and tranquil situation. It sometimes means leaning into discomfort and taking that imperfect step towards finding peace. It's the understanding of knowing to love everyone, my family, my siblings, for who they are, despite their troubles. I taught myself to love because, and love despite, to know that hate never wins and to practice forgiveness. I look at life differently. I try my best not to compare my life to others, to see what I'm missing and to wish for something different. I know my situation's difficult. I know it's different, but in the end, all I can really do is be mindful and kind, to be gracious, thoughtful, and be good. As long as I'm at peace with myself, whether he comes around or not, at the end of the day, my family might be broken in some sense. The concept of peace in my life isn't the same as everyone else. The overall reality of life is nothing is perfect. There's no one true definition of peace as it is interpreted differently for others. Today, I shared with you all an aspect of life that all has never been peaceful for me. But as long as I myself can be that beacon of peace for my family, that's all that really matters. Thank you.
This evening, I'm going to be discussing the climate crisis from the perspective of my two disciplines, history and economics. This speech isn't designed to convince you that climate change is real or that you should care about it. I hope you're already there. Instead, this is an opportunity for you to reflect on your own approach to climate action. So whether we're talking about rising sea levels, massive plastic consumption and waste, or humanity's addiction to hydrocarbon energy sources, I think one thing is abundantly clear. The actions and, hu and habits of humans, especially humans in the wealthiest nations, have contributed to the destabilization of ecosystems around the world, and therefore have led to suffering around the world. When we start thinking about these issues, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. We think about the magnitude of the problem, and maybe we get backed into a corner, start to feel like withdrawal is the only solution. When we talk about climate denial, most of us think about Donald Trump calling climate change a Chinese hoax. But there's another kind of denial that I think is a lot more prevalent and potentially more dangerous. And that's the denial that we have the potential power to do harm and to affect change. Doug Kaufman, a local pastor and community member, described this problem in a recent article. He wrote, active denial is repudiation or rejection when we heatedly refute the facts of the situation, but denial can also be passive when we are in some sense aware of a painful reality, but we avert our gaze or we deflect attention. Now, most people aren't active deniers of human-caused climate change, but I think many of us are subject to a kind of passive denial that allows us to shirk responsibility and to shirk the responsibility of action. Sometimes I think we feel the need to clean house before we're ready to act on climate change. If this really is the existential threat to human life, doesn't that imply that we need to throw out the current things that we do, our habits, our systems, our tools? While massive restructuring will be necessary to deal with the problem of climate change, I don't think that we need to throw out everything that we know or have ever done. In fact, looking back might be the best path forward. Last fall, I had the opportunity to work with three professors and two other undergrads on a project sponsored by the Center for Sustainable Climate, Cha Climate Solutions. I helped uh, conduct interviews with local Anabaptist people for, to hear how their communities were approaching conversation and action on the climate. Out of those conversations, I learned an important lesson, that our community, because of our proximity to the Anabaptist legacy, might actually be uniquely poised for action on climate change. So whether you grew up Mennonite or you're part of this community that's new to the Anabaptist story, I'm inviting you to consider the tools that Anabaptist history represents when we're facing the climate crisis. Now throughout its history, the Anabaptist movement has represented, has been defined by radical faith practice. Radical in the sense that Anabaptists practice a set of beliefs that wasn't defined by the state or by a broader culture around them, but was rather defined by their own moral reasoning based on their understanding of the early Christian church. So here's the toolbox I'm talking about. First, that Anabaptists throughout their history have embraced a faith practice that called them to think beyond national borders. Second, that early Anabaptists acted out of moral frameworks that were not defined by the state or by the culture around them. And third, that throughout the history of the movement, many Anabaptists have chosen to take decisive moral action, even at the cost of their own economic benefit, even when abandoning the tenets of their beliefs would have made things easier. So these are the three tenets, the three learnings that I think that we could find useful. These tenets of Anabaptism suggest to me that whenever we're thinking about the climate crisis, that we ought to frame our decisions not around what we need, but around what the global community needs. That our actions should be in alignment with our own moral principles and not with those of the state or of the broader culture around us. And finally, that we should consider not so much what brings us economic gain, but what actions fit with our beliefs. So these are principles that are broadly applicable, but today I have a very specific example. This evening, I'm asking you to consider my take on an approach that has been advocated by members of our community for a number of years. And the first part of that is that 
each of us would commit to a voluntary carbon tax in two areas of our lives. In the gasoline that we buy for our cars and in the miles that we fly via airplane. This tax wouldn't be sent to the government. We would actually choose to set it aside and it could be then spent in aid of organizations who are fighting climate change. So the second part of my proposal is that Goshen College would commit to paying carbon onsets for every SST and Mayterm flight that we purchase in order to acknowledge some of the true cost of the global education that we have chosen to pursue, even if this means a more expensive program. Now, the first lesson of the Anabaptist framework that I asked you to reflect on was an embrace of a faith practice that called Anabaptists to think beyond national borders. Through the work of Gerald Ross Richard, Goshen College is already connected with an indigenous Ecuadorian community called the Kofan, who are responsible for the protection of a significant area of the Amazon rainforest. Directing money from a voluntary carbon tax to the Kofan Survival Fund could incorporate an international or a cross-national approach and solution to a problem that has been caused by Western consumption. The second lesson that I highlighted was a willingness to act beyond the moral frameworks of the state. One of the most damaging things the United States government has done in the face of the climate crisis has been to double down on subsidizing fossil fuels. Today, because of domestic fracking investments, the cost of a gallon of gas is astonishingly low. Here's the problem. When we go to the tank and we fill up our car, the price that we see on the screen doesn't reflect the true cost of the product that we're receiving. Environmental economists describe a difference between the market cost of a product and its true carbon cost, which accounts for the full environmental impact of its extraction and of its use. So when we get products for less than the true carbon cost, that's a market fa failure. Now, a tax on carbon is a sol potential solution to that failure. Taxes serve a dual purpose. They raise revenue and they also disincentivize activity. Instead of holding our breath for carbon tax policy from Congress though, I think that we could proactively volunteer that money ourselves. A voluntary gas tax paid by the gallon can be a helpful personal practice. We're motivated to drive our cars less and we can direct the money that we collect towards activities which will actually fight climate change. Now traditionally a carbon offset has been a popular way for a business to account for their carbon consumption. The voluntary gas tax though is part of a slightly different model called an onset. Onsets are based on a higher estimate for the cost of carbon than traditional offsets. They also allow us to direct funds right into the hands of organizations that we trust to use that money well. Now the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions recommends a voluntary gas tax at the rate of 50 cents per gallon. So by today's prices, you would still be paying less on gas than you have for much of the last decade. The third part of the framework of Anabaptist history I've highlighted this evening is a commitment to decisive moral action taken at the cost of economic benefit. Whether it's the presidential search committee meeting held in Florida or an SST trip all the way to Indonesia, I think it's time for Goshen College to make a commitment to pay the full social and environmental cost of the carbon it expends in pursuit of its mission. Now in terms of flights, the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions recommends a tax of two cents per air mile. On a flight from Chicago to Quito, Ecuador, that means setting aside about $120 for a carbon onset. Now at the beginning of this speech, I reflected on how difficult it can be to face problems that feel insurmountable. Today, I'm inviting you to join me in a first step for a year-long commitment to a voluntary carbon tax that not only recognizes the impact of our consumption, but also begins to do something about it. The money we set aside can be directed to organizations that we trust, like the Kofan Survival Fund, or Trees for Goshen, a local organization, and you can actually get started by visiting earthdeeds.org and clicking Onset Now. Could we, those who have heard and continue to tell the story of Anabaptist history, reject comfort, safety, and economic benefit in the name of forging a new path forward? Could we 
move ourselves, uproot ourselves, and call ourselves to a higher standard as leaders in the environmental movement. Engagement with the story of Anabaptism begs these questions. And engagement with the needs of our hurting world answers with a resounding yes. Thank you. Damp, hungry, confused. These three words describe my condition on July of 2014 in Denver, Colorado. I was going into my freshman year of high school when my youth group decided to take part in this poverty simulation. It felt like we were homeless, but in reality, it was just a controlled experience. It was meant to illustrate homelessness, but it wasn't the real deal. So for three days, we scoured for food in city dumpsters. We slept in playgrounds through the cold and rainy nights. And we endured long lines at soup kitchens and homeless shelters. We basically encountered all the problems that a homeless person would face. At the time, I thought to myself, this sucks. But looking back, as a sophomore in college with all the food that I can eat in the cafeteria three times a day and a, and a warm bed to sleep on in Yoder Hall, I think to myself, maybe I needed that. Like many of you sitting in the audience, I will never experience true poverty. I won't know what it's like to wonder when or where my next meal will be. I won't ever question if I have a bed to sleep on. I'll pick clothes from a closet full of options. So why am I speaking about the homeless? Because on this night, and every night, Goshen is home to the homeless. Global homelessness exists in the world we live in today. At times, we're drawn to this issue in developing countries, but refuse to recognize it directly under our noses. You see, the American dream is being sought out by immigrants and refugees from all over, but what about the homeless in the United States? the homeless in Elkhart County? What about the homeless in Goshen? You see, homeless America defies easy characterization, persecution of the lower class, and those who aren't suitable for the system seem to be rooted in the issue of homelessness. Now, how is it that the victims of the problem are the ones that fall prey? It's truly time to reassess ourselves. Are we really fighting a war on homelessness? Or are we fighting a war against the homeless? The existence of homeless people in our world is still evident today. You see it on the news, but many don't see it from a realistic point of view. Being from Bangladesh, I've seen it all. Beggars with no legs asking for spare change, mothers with children trying to make ends meet, teenagers selling stolen goods, just to make a profit for something to eat for the day. It truly breaks my heart to see my own people suffering and in agonizing conditions. Researchers say that despite the poverty level dropping, 68% of Bangladeshi citizens have been homeless for more than a year. That means over 100 million people have been without a place to call home whether it was due to poverty, natural disasters, or violence. And you might think it doesn't affect you because it's on the other side of the world, but what about here today? What about in the United States, the, the land of the free, the home of the brave? In our own city, there are victims of the system who face homelessness. In June of 2019, Goshen leaders began evicting homeless encampment near the Millrace Trail. Think about that not even a mile away from campus, people just like you and I were facing homelessness. As a result of the eviction, Mayor Jeremy Stutzman and others began working with the community agencies to provide a shelter for the homeless being evicted. 
Ross Swihart, the executive director of Faith Mission in Elkhart, is working to find solutions to this issue. Swihart says, quote, we are interested in finding solutions for the people that are living out there because it is not a way to live. It is not a way to live, end quote. Swihart says that Faith Mission is partnering with the Interfaith Hospitality Network to create a shelter hopefully in the next few years. However, the problem is now. It's still here. Everywhere you look around our cities, parks, and streets, it's likely you'll witness a homeless person struggling to survive. People today are far too driven by work or money to really see the problem of homelessness surrounding them. Those who are discriminated against are the victims of poverty. According to the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, 40% of the homeless community is made up of African Americans. Furthermore, they discovered that over 700,000 youth under the age of 18 experience homelessness each year. The numbers are staggering, but we can see that societal and generational homelessness is an attack on the lower class, the people who aren't considered top tier in a pessimistic society. And let's face it, for the most part, you and I will never truly experience homelessness from a realistic perspective. However, one can see the effects of homelessness and poverty in their daily lives. To better understand the challenge we face, I'd like to return to Denver, reflecting on what I learned from my three days of poverty immersion. Our group leader, Jeff Cook, was an executive director for Providence Center for Urban Leadership, an organization that helps families in poverty and equips them for ministry. Now, Jeff was telling us the story of this homeless woman who was very hungry. And now, as this homeless woman was scouring for food, this Christian man approached her and saw that she was hungry and that she was sleep deprived and that she was starving. So the Christian man goes up to her and hands her this pamphlet saying, Jesus will save you. After hearing this, I was really confused. I mean, what was the woman supposed to do, eat the paper? I mean, is this an evangelism thing? Is, like, did he feel good about giving this starving woman a gospel track? Jeff went on to explain that by prioritizing our own agenda, we're not helping the homeless. We're not doing the right thing when the outcome doesn't go both ways. Following this event, we found ourselves in a situation where we could actually do some good. Our group explored the city of Denver, doing all the touristy things that youth groups do, and we ended up in an outlet mall within the heart of the city. Immediately, every group member noticed the homeless scattered across this outlet mall, something that we wouldn't have recognized before. Rather than finding some loose change in our back pockets, several group members searched for food and water to provide for the homeless. And I thought this is what we had to do. However, looking back, we were merely scratching the surface. You see, when it comes to the homeless, we are going beyond materialism. We are called to give to the homeless, yes, but we are also called to build relationships with them in order to truly show that we care. This entire experience opened my eyes to this world that many overlook. The world where you're one or two bad circumstances away from living on the streets. A world where you have nowhere to go, nowhere to stay. Where can one find peace in a world that has very little of it? Oftentimes, our own personal agenda reigns supreme in our lives. We think about ourselves because self-care is important, right? It's all about me. But what about them? What about the outsiders, the outcasts? If we want to create peace with one another, we must first find peace with ourselves. Peace starts with us. So what can we do? For starters, we should determine a way to educate ourselves around this issue. There are many ways a person becomes homeless, whether it's due to lack of affordable housing, loss of job, substance abuse, illness, divorce, and many others. One step in figuring out the complex issue of homelessness is finding how they got there in the first place. 
Secondly, we are called to respect the homeless. Those who are homeless are still human. They still feel emotions just like you and I. Many people who experience homelessness say that the loss of dignity is harder to bear than the loss of physical things. We may be conflicted when it comes to what exactly we have to do when we encounter a homeless person. And although there isn't a specific answer, we are called to build a relationship with them, which is perceived more significantly than a couple bucks out of our pocket. Respecting those who are homeless is just as important as respecting those who aren't. Lastly, we are called to recognize the importance of advocating for the homeless. Calling your local business, uh, calling your local homeless shelter, helping your local organizations with food drives, and following local politics in order to see what you can do to help are all examples. You might call the window in downtown Goshen to get more specific information about volunteering. You might call St. Mark's Methodist Church in North Goshen to see what services are offered for the homeless. The outlets are available to help, but it's up to you to make the change that you want to see. At the end of the day, we are all human. Our common goal is to move forward. Rather than creating dissonance with one another, we should strive to choose compassion over ignorance. And we may not solve this issue immediately, but taking that one step could be the way to figure out the solution. Thank you. The world is burning, and we are standing still. Nature is burning. From Amazon to Greenland, Pakanbaru to Borneo, California to Gran Canaria, India to Angola to Australia to Siberia, yes, the world is burning. The earth itself won't go up in flames, not instantly at least, but species will suffer. Common ones will be vulnerable. Vulnerable will be endangered, and those endangered will die and become extinct. Already, 25% of Earth's species are endangered and threatened with extinction. With more extreme conditions, these numbers will only increase. Climate change alone has not been proven to increase the likelihood of conflicts and wars. However, changing climate compounded with challenging economic, political, or social conditions heighten the risk of conflict. As unintended burns increase, as places become excessively flooded, as droughts and storms increase, and as average temperature of the world goes up, problems already present, such as poverty, political instability, and crime, will be magnified, and we will all be pulled into countless conflicts and wars. As the United Nations cautioned, climate apartheid will arise, where the rich can buy their way out of rising heat and hunger. It's already happening. Then. It will be our turn to go up in flames, and the trend will be hashtag we're burning. Contrary to what Billy Joel said, we did start this fire, and no, we're not trying to fight it. A recent study from Brown University's Cost of War project said that the US Department of Defense has a larger annual carbon footprint than most countries on Earth. Their measures might even seem justifiable, but the biggest component of US military's carbon dioxide emissions have been in wars and occupations almost entirely unnecessary. In short, US, alongside other powerful countries, are poisoning the planet for their own dominance. And their hesitancy towards our concrete climate action is further fueling the fire that's burning. I don't know enough about wars to comment on them. But I know, do know that there are more important things in the world that we can direct our attention to than fighting more wars. If we have to fight, if we are so genetically wired to fight, 
Let's fight against powerful gas and oil companies who fund representatives, who vote against progressive ideas that are in favor of environmental change, protection, and basic human rights. Let's fight against hate and xenophobia and allow people to be their authentic selves. Fight against policies that take away your power, your control over your own body. Against bullies who threaten activists on social media. Against gun lobbyists who believe that violence can be reduced by handing a gun to everyone. Against years of distorted and doctored history we were taught to believe in and against ourselves at times. While Jay's speech was much towards giving an insight into what the current problem is and providing really powerful solutions. Mine is mostly personal. And I am graduating with a degree in biology and sustainability study, and then I'm going into a world where I have no idea of what I'll be doing. And I'm sad, and I'm angry, and I'm dep not depressed. I become hopeless, and I'm upset because I still don't know what I'm going to do. My mother taught me that anger is a bad emotion, that anger is like fire and you cannot fight fire with fire. You need to be an extinguisher, just like the way you need a shelter to survive a storm. But we're already in the midst of a storm and our shelters have been dismantled by those we trusted to protect us. So don't tell your children, your students, your family not to be angry. Instead, teach them that anger needs to be and can be transformative. Connect them with others who'll help them transfer that anger into a motivational push for change. Get them involved. Research, policy making, activism, mainstream politics. We need environmentally conscious and morally conscious humane people in all walks of life. I understand that groups such as Mennonites and Anabaptists remain ambivalent towards government participation, and understandably so. But please don't tell your family, your friends, your grandchildren and neighbors that politics is not their cup of tea. Politics entered our home and is threatening our neighbors and making our children afraid of going to school and suffocating the air we breathe. We do not have the right to say we are apolitical or neutral when every action we make is so blatantly political. And we should hold ourselves responsible for every fire that starts and Every war that breaks out and every person who says this does not concern me, it does concern you for the very ground you're walking on is burning. I struggle. What am I supposed to do? Feel sorrow and hopelessness and despair when I read about loss of ecosystems, communities and species? About fires and flood that make up the news on a daily basis? As I get closer to graduating, embarking into a real world, I am filled with dread because, like I said, I don't know what to do. I feel hopelessly inadequate to solve the bigger problems concerning our humanity and the environment, but also I feel the urgency to do something. What if I start from the very bottom and as I'm, I'm climbing up the bureaucratic ladders, I find it's too late, it's already been too late. It's sad. When people act like they're listening to climate activists, but they continue to go their own way, do their own thing. And it's not just politicians I'm talking about. It's families, it's friends, it's institutions we're affiliated with. It's you, it's me, it's us. I'm enraged when people would rather buy a bottle of water when there's an empty cup and a water filter in the other room. When people act so righteous on using recyclable or compostable containers, but then they throw it in the trash. If we can spend hours playing video games or hours scrolling through social media for memes, can't we spend an hour learning how to recycle? It's upsetting. When people around you don't give a fudge and start rolling their eyes when you're trying to point out their behaviors. I'm not just venting out my frustrations over plastic water bottles or recycling, which I am, but it's also about our attitudes. If we can't even take simple, small steps today, what, what can I expect from all of us tomorrow? Jace gave very good ideas on what can be done personally. And there are more 
You can divest from fossil fuel companies. You can see where your investments are going as institutions, as people, and exercise your rights as citizens, responsible consumers, have less children. Start conversations on climate change, creating safe communities, and even on who you should vote and why. Don't be a one-issue voter, just don't, and please do something. Start thinking about it. I was asked to include a call for action. But what can I say that hasn't already been said, and how do I say it to make it stick when you have heard it a thousand times already and not done anything? How do we purposefully move? in a world that's burning. Instead, today, I ask you to take a moment and think about at least one thing you're ready to commit to from today. At least one thing, take a few moments. Now, share that with the person sitting beside you. Something small, small step, it, can, it should be very concise, but share it, please. <laughs> now, now I'll end with a prayer. May we buy less and buy things that last. No one-day shipping, please. May we acknowledge our wrongdoings, grieve for them, and may we turn our grief into hope and in doing so find renewed purpose in our own existence. May we feel connected to all the life that the earth supports and use that connection to draw people into a movement to build resilient communities. May we learn to care for the earth, for the generations yet to come, and for the generations we've wronged. May our words reflect our actions, and our actions reflect what is right and what ought to be done. May the end be merciful, for I doubt there will be a happily ever after to what was once upon a time. very in common the news stories nowadays. President Trump and Iran, as Americans would say it. Or Iran, as I would say it. As an Iranian, I realized that me and President Trump have a lot in common. Not only my country and his name are in the news constantly, but also we started our four-year life-changing commitment around the same time. It was during my first semester of college when President Trump got elected. The day after his election victory in November of 2016, we had our ICC Identity, Community, and Culture class. I remember while I was crying, I was asking my professor if there's going to be a war or not. Ever since the election, the US instituted a travel ban against Iran and six other countries. U.S. sanctions have greatly weakened Iran's economy that has caused it to increase poverty in Iran and also had, had blocked the access to necessities like medical supplies and medicine. Lives have gotten harder as our national currency, Rial, has become the most worthless currency in the world. My family and thousands of other Iranian families experiencing high levels of stress, given the uncertainty of this current political situation. How was breaking a promise and getting out of the Iran nuclear agreement a prevention of terrorism? How was assassinating another country's head military officer who was not proven to be in action a self-defense reaction? Worst of all, Everyone in the world so, seems so ignorant about what's all these actions that are happening against Iran. 
Nobody seems to care about Iranian people, not even my own Iranian oppressive government. A lot of people have asked me how I'm doing recently, and I've not been able to come up with an answer that would actually explain how I've been feeling. Trust me, I don't know either. It took a long time for me to process it. At first, I felt heartbroken and betrayed from both my Iranian government and the rest of the world. I'm an Iranian. I grew up Muslim. Iran, that's my country. That's where I grew up. Tehran, the capital, that's where I, my house is, my family and my friends live. But I've lived in the US for almost six years. I became an adult here. This society and culture has made a huge part of my personality and who I am today. I call this place home as much as I call Iran home. You see, this is why this global conflict is so personal to me. Seeing all these terrible things happening in the world, mostly caused by my second home, US, towards my first home, Iran, just makes me so angry at both of them. But all along, what am I still doing here in the land of the enemy? is the question that I ask myself constantly, feeling horrible for being here and living the dream life while my friends, my depressed and hopeless friends back home are being oppressed by the government and are being just betrayed by the whole world. Why am I still here? While reflecting on what the world has come to and being angry at everything, I found myself trying to find peace. I remembered a story that my dad told me. In the midst of the Crusade Wars in the 13th century, San Francis of Assisi, one of the most um, religious, honored religious uh, figures in Christianity, crossed the battlegrounds in Egypt and entered the Muslim army camp to meet with the Sultan. He was welcomed and accepted by them. Jan Hobart says in his book, Francis and Islam, that San Francis, and I quote, experienced how God had graciously accepted Muslims in the otherness of their religion and culture and blessed them with good gifts. He knew that he too had to accept Muslims in their otherness and approach them with respect for God's sake. It is this respect for the other in their otherness that San Francis asks from the people now today. Now, I'm neither San Francis nor a messenger of God, but I believe that I've had a chance to have a similar experience. As much as I lived as the other among the others, here in the US. I felt protected and cared for here in the small community of Goshen. Traveling off campus, there have been many times where I've doubted my safety and um, felt uncomfortable. I can, I can never forget, after my second year of college, I went back to Iran to renew my visa to be able to enter back to US after my study service term in Indonesia. On my way back, in the Chicago O'Hare Airport, when I was waiting in the line at the customs, I realized that the officer that I was waiting for in the line was keeping the international people longer than other officers. Visually, he also met stereotypes of somebody who would not have great opinions about international people coming in into the US. He had a ser serious frown on his face. He was a bit overweight, balding, and Yes, he was white. He's, uh, I remember I was very worried and scared that he might want to find some type of problem in my case and not want to let me into the country. When it was my turn, after taking pictures and fingerprints, he looked at my documents and my passport. I could hear my heart beating. <coughs> he suddenly stopped and looked at me. He said, you're from Iran. Yes, sir, I said. 
He said, as he was shaking my passport in the air, you know, this country has saved my life, and I will forever owe my life to it and its people. He was definitely not who I thought he was. Turns out, he had an old Iranian friend who had saved his life many years ago, <clears throat> and he was still thankful for that, to that friend. Unfortunately, there were a lot of people behind me in the line, and I really wanted to get out of the airport, so I didn't stand there and ask about this glorious rescue. But think about it. The role that that Iranian man lived in this, the role that that Iranian man played in this American's life was a huge and powerful step in peacemaking. And that was only one case. I realized that although I'm just a regular college student, I can also be a bridge between the two extremes, just like that Iranian man was for that American officer. <coughs> and this is how I separate my path from President Trump. But my voice is alone is not enough. The difference is made when all of us unite and work together towards building peace among nations and connections among people. I know this all sounds so overrated, but the fact that I'm standing here in front of you asking you to listen to these words again means that we still have a lot to do. This is the time more than ever to do something. Think about the barriers that put the otherness among us, the border of the otherness. Then take a step towards the other and believe and respect them in their otherness. Build connections and build friendships. Let us all work together to remove these barriers that separate us from each other. You can start by saying Iran and refer to its people as Iranians instead of saying Iran and Iranians. <laughs> if we all don't help each other to build these bridges, the fire that has already been started will burn the existing bridges as well. As San Francis prayed, O greater power among us, Make us an instrument of your peace. And where there is hatred, let us sow love. Thank you. Let's give one more sustained applause for all five of our speakers. We're about to announce the two top place finishers. Thank you again to the judges for your fine work. And I would ask the, the two speakers who are about to be named now, when you do hear your name, to come forward and let us uh, add some additional applause. The second place winner and recipient of a $150 award is Nassim Rasolipour. Effect. That was that was intended. All right. And the um, the first place winner and recipient of a 
$300 award and also the opportunity to represent Goshen College in the binational competition is Ronit Goswami. Thank you all for coming out, and I hope you'll have a chance to stay, visit just a bit with final congratulations, and uh, don't forget, next year, around the same time, we'll be back, and we'll look forward to seeing you here again. Thank you. <laughs>